I'm Madalika Sika, and this is 52 Weeks, 52 Books, 52 Women, the podcast. Shaker Heights, Ohio is a planned community. Perfectly mowed lawns, regulated colors, and size of houses. It's a suburban utopia, and Mrs. Richardson lives the perfect Shaker Heights life, with her lovely house, her husband who was her college sweetheart and a successful lawyer, four children. She's a presence in her community. But her perfect bubble is popped by the arrival of artist Mia Warren and her teenage daughter Pearl, and by a broiling controversy in the town about adopted Chinese child. Motherhood, choices, young love, race and class, all are explored in Little Fires Everywhere, the newest novel by author Celeste Ng, who joins me now. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you set this book in Shaker Heights, Ohio, a place you grew up in, I believe. That's right. Um, and it's a story about mothers, um, but it's also a terrific story about mothers and their children. Um, most of the children in the book are teenagers growing up, um, and you set the book in the 1990s, before social media, cell phones, etc. Why then? Well, one reason uh, to start off with was that that was when I was a teenager in the 90s. So it was an era that I felt like I could write fairly well, that I remembered something of what it was like to be a teenager then. I remembered the places that were around in Shaker Heights where we would go to have coffee or have snacks late at night. And the other reason was that in the 90s, as you said, it was sort of before social media. It was before the internet was even really a very big thing. It was before cell phones. And I think that now it would be a lot harder to um, keep the kind of secrets that a lot of the characters in the book keep from each other. Um, A number of them have things in their past that they're sort of hoping to leave behind. And in, in our sort of interconnected world now, I think it's really hard for you to shed those sort of past selves, um, you know, with a little bit of Googling, people can find out a surprising amount about you. And I needed to set the book at a time where the characters could have that kind of elbow room to be mysterious and to hide things from each other. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, That happens for both the adults and the children. You know, for the children, it's a time when kids biked to school and, you know, went to each other's houses and lounged in front of the TV together. Um, And for the adults, you know, there's some research that Mrs. Richardson wants to do, and heaven forbid, it actually involves a library. A library and a landline. She has to call, at one point, um, she has to call, you know, information services and see if she can find somebody's phone number and address. And now, you know, there are websites that just accumulate all that data and also the names of your Mm -hmm. parents and your, you know, siblings and anyone else you've ever met. Um, it's all out there. So setting the book uh, in the 90s allowed me to, to give the characters sort of some privacy in some ways. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, and I think it's a very richly drawn portrait of the 90s, which in some sense was not a long ago. But in other ways, it's unimaginable to a lot of young people now. I think that's exactly right, that um, it's it's hard to overstate how much I think that cell phones, and particularly the iPhone and the internet, have changed just sort of how people interact with each other. Right. Um, and it was, you know, about 20 years ago, but it, it does feel sort of both very far away and very not far away, both um, in terms of the technology and in terms, I think, of how people were sort of looking at each other and talking about race and the mindset of the time. Right. Well, I love um, this idea of, you know, a time when you could keep secrets. Um, now, Mrs. Richardson is an exquisitely drawn picture of a perfect suburban wife and mother, um, almost to the point of caricature, but not quite. Uh, it feels authentic to me. 
Uh, tell me about her and where she came from. And did you know women like that growing up? I, I did know women like that growing up. And, and, you know, in certain ways, I'm even like that a little bit. I'm trying to sort of balance having you know, family life and professional life and trying to sort of do the be the woman who has it all. And I think that's sort of what Mrs. Richardson wants her life to be. She wants to sort of do everything and have everything be perfect. Um, the character of Mrs. Richardson really grew out of the community of Shaker Heights. Um, as I said, it's a community where I grew up and I felt like I, I knew that place really well and I wanted to create a family that would embody the, the town's ethos, you know, of being very um, progressive, being um, sort of out to change the world and make it better, but at the same time being um, a little bit of a stickler about following rules and things like that. And so Mrs. Richardson was sort of the character that would embody all of that. Right, and she does. And um, it's interesting that in the book, uh, you refer to her as Mrs. Richardson. We hardly ever hear her first name, which is uh, Elena. What was that about? <laughs> I, I didn't even realize I was doing that until I gave the, the book to my, my agent and my editor. And they said, you know, you, you have got to occasionally give her her first name because um, you keep calling her Mrs. Richardson. And I realized that was partly because um, I, I thought of her as Mrs. Richardson. And she is, in fact, the sort of person who would like other people, I think, to think of her as Mrs. Richardson, not Elena. Mm-hmm. Um, I think back to when I was a teenager and there were the moms who liked to go by their first names. Um, you know, you'd come over and they'd say, oh, I'm Jane. And you were supposed to call them Jane. And there, and then there were the moms who would definitely not like to be called by their first names. And I think that's her. Right. Um, well, speaking of first names, uh, the other mother involved in the story, Mia Warren, a single mother, a bohemian itinerant artist, no commitments to physical space or things devoted to her art and her daughter. You know, they travel around with whatever they can carry in their VW. They've moved, you know, 40 plus times. She's the anti-Mrs. Richardson. Um, Did you start the book by wanting to write about two different kinds of mothers? I did. I wanted to have someone come in and sort of stir up some trouble for this community. And although I didn't plan for her to be sort of Mrs. Richardson's exact counterpoint, I wanted her to lead a life that Mrs. Richardson would have real trouble understanding. And so where Mrs. Richardson is very grounded in the community, has a large house, they've lived there for a long time, and and she has roots there. Um, Her parents and her grandparents also lived in the community. Um, Mia is sort of the, the opposite in that she, as you said, moves around. And I thought that Mrs. Richardson would have a really hard time understanding both that lifestyle and also the, that sort of artistic mentality. Um, so they seem like good sort of foils for each other. Right. Well, they are two different kinds of mothers, of course, but what they have in common is that they are mothers and they're so intertwined in the lives of their children. Um, it's a little bit sacrificial. I, I guess it is sacrificial. <laughs> I hadn't thought about it that way. Um, but I think both of them... Um, it's very important to both of them to be sort of good mothers. And that's part of the trouble between them, I think, which is that um, as these two families meet each other, Mia's daughter Pearl is sort of drawn to the Richardson family and drawn to Mrs. Richardson, who's very unlike her own mother. And Mrs. Richardson's daughters, and particularly Izzy, the youngest, is really drawn to Mia because she's so different from her own mother. And so there's, I think, a little bit of... um, sort of maternal jealousy in some ways about sort of, you know, what is what is that other mother doing for you that I'm not able to do right. for you? Right. I definitely sense that sort of jealousy in this sort of idealized version of the other. So for Pearl, 
she comes to this big uh, comfortable house it's a, an image of a home life that she kind of always imagined and you write um the idea of a house that some archetype brought to life before her um and the richardson children sort of envy the free spiritedness of pearl's life uh with her mother um and you know i think you say a lot about the children through the mothers in that way and a lot about the mothers through their children yeah i think that uh, the mother-child relationship is just it always fascinates me and the sort of parent-child family relationships are sort of a through line in a lot of my work um, in this case, I sort of, I really wanted to look at this sort of difference between the mothers that you are born to and then the mothers that you maybe choose for yourself or that choose you or find you in some way. Um, I think a lot of people have the experience where at some point they, they find a sort of parental figure who's not their actual parents, who sometimes can see them a little more clearly than their own parents can. Um, and that I think leads to a lot of complicated feelings for everyone. Um, you know, for the parent, of course, there's this sort of sense of, well, come, I'm not, you know, your confidant. And for the children too, I think that it leads to sort of moment of reckoning and saying, what, what do I get from my parents? And what, what is there that I need that I'm not able to get for them Mm -hmm. for whatever reason? Well, speaking of mothers, um, that come into your life, the other thread in the story, uh, is about a contested adoption. Um, Mrs. Richardson's best friends, the McCullers, they adopt an abandoned Chinese baby um, after years of trying very hard to have a child. Um, Mia realizes that the baby belongs to one of her workmates, where she works in a restaurant, um, a lady called Bebe. And she persuades her or raises the issue of, well, she's your child, you should have her back and which of course bb wants to do and both bb and mrs mccullough exhibit a fierce love for this little baby um and it's painful because you can understand that that sort of unbridled love but you still have to resolve the question of where that child belongs yeah exactly and both of these mothers i think have a really good claim on this child you know and both of them really love this child um you know bb who is the biological mother um sort of going through you know postpartum kind of episode and was you know not well off and was really struggling when she left her baby at the fire station and the McCullers, of course have wanted to have a child for a long time and so now that they've had this baby and that they've raised this baby um really since she was just a few weeks old they think of her as their baby but of course she's biologically not their baby and she biologically belongs to this other woman and that's such a naughty question that i wanted to sort of be sure to show how complicated it was on both sides and how good a claim both of these sides have and what sort of an impossible situation everyone is in right you paint the picture of the mccullers you know they are a well-to-do privileged family who clearly can give this child every material uh, gift a child could possibly uh, need for growing up um and there is some contention uh one of the fights around the custody is around the issue of the baby's chinese heritage um and they they come across a little bit as treating the chinese heritage almost as an accessory to the child is that too harsh a way of describing it do you think i i think they wouldn't think of it that way i think um it might be a fair thing to say but i think that they they are doing their best i do think that they are um and the question just really is you know they don't have access to that part of their baby's 
culture. And so what's lost if the baby doesn't have a connection to sort of the Chinese culture that she grew out of? Um, and it's really, I think, a question that applies to all of the parents, not just the um, not just the McCulloughs, which is sort of what are the things that you aren't able to give your child that they maybe need or that would sort of help them in some way? Um, the McCulloughs, you know, try and, and do what they can by looking for books that have Chinese characters if they have them or taking their baby for Chinese food. That's the Chinese culture that's sort of available to them. Right. Um, and I think that they are doing the best they can. But is it enough? I don't know. Yeah, and it's interesting. I, I was struck by the fact by setting it in the 90s, which was sort of, I, I guess, the first sort of period of expansion of U.S. adoptions of Chinese babies. Yeah. Was that another thing that inspired you? It was. I remember being in high school um, and seeing, you know, sort of more and more Asian, always girl babies um, who usually come from China um, being placed with white families, which is wonderful, you know, and it's great for a family to be able to take care of a child and it's great for a child to have a home. But I... I also felt really, um, really mixed feelings because you've got Asian girls who are growing up in this suburb with very few Asians. And I'm not an an adoptee, but I know that it's difficult sometimes when you don't look like the other kids. Um, You, in some ways, you always have to be explaining yourself or people expect that you owe them an explanation of who you are and where you come from. And that's a lot to put on a child. Um, so that that's another reason that I thought putting the book in the 90s kind of highlighted that. Mm-hmm. And the, the battle lines are drawn. Um, you know, this fight is sort of a proxy uh, fight almost between Mrs. Richardson and Mia, since both of them are friends with one side or the other. They take opposing sides, and the teenagers are kind of pitted in this battle, too, um, about the adoption, and the teenagers sort of develop their own um feelings about what the right thing to do is um what was it that appealed to you about including their voices uh in and you know how they saw this situation well i really wanted the book as a whole to be about a community and so i wanted to sort of bring in as many voices as i could i was really interested in the ways that um the dynamics of these different groups, you know, two families, but then also the larger community kind of intersected with each other and the places where they agreed and where they disagreed or where they sort of harmonized with each other or where they were sort of discordant. Um, and for the children to take sides seemed really natural to me that they would have opinions on it. Everyone in the community has got an opinion about where this baby belongs. Um, and it, it never occurred to me, honestly, to, to not include their voices. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I keep saying teenagers, uh, they are sort of pushing college age, a few of them. So they are older teenagers. And, you know, their through lines are, there's a, speaking of secrets, there's some wonderful story. Um, there's a wonderful story that you um, weave in about the teenagers, which I think it's hard to talk about without spoiling it. So we won't talk about that. But, um, but I mean, I found the book a sort of very, almost achingly beautiful read. Um, like the portraits are very richly rendered. I don't know that I particularly liked Mrs. Richardson, but I really felt her. Um, You know, she's uptight, she's highly strung, she's obsessed with living by the rules. And the arrival of Mia just makes her question everything. And you, you feel it physically almost. Yeah, she's very uncomfortable with that. She's really uncomfortable with Mia and with everything that sort of Mia, that Mia sort of represents. Um, And I'm really glad to hear you say that, that even if you don't, you don't have to like the characters, but I think to understand them, I feel like is sort of my, always my goal in a story. 
And I, I wanted to write a story in which there were not clear villains. You know, there was not, you know, some one person over in the corner kind of evilly, you know, like, like drumming their fingertips. And I wanted to write a story in which there wasn't a clear hero either. I think that each of the characters in the book, I think pretty much every single one, does something that is probably, you know, most people would agree is a, was a poor decision. Um, but what I really wanted was sort of for the reader to be able to understand why those characters were doing what they were doing. It's, um, I have a young son, and we talk sometimes about the idea of, of bad guys and good guys in the mm-hmm. books. And one of the things that sort of um, he's getting his head around is that bad guys often don't think that they are the bad guys. Mm-hmm. You know, they think that they're the good guys. Right. And what's very interesting about Mrs. Richardson, she sort of becomes single-minded in her quest to find something on Mia. Um, and I sort of felt that it first I thought it was just pure jealousy but the way you write it I think what emerges is this sort of um almost melancholy about the path not taken in her life yeah I think that's exactly right that um you know Mrs. Richardson by all measures probably including her own has a very successful life she has a career as a journalist for the local paper she's got a nice house she's got a beautiful family she's you know she's um outwardly she's doing quite well but I think she has always played it safe. And there's a part of her that just sort of wonders, well, what if I hadn't played it safe? Would I, you know, what kind of life would I have? Would I be happier? Would life be more exciting? And what did I miss out on? You know, what what did I miss out on? Or did I miss out on something? Or, you know, is it too late? And that's part of what drives her is really, she thinks it's about Mia, but a lot of it really is about herself and her relation to her own life. Mm-hmm. Now, the story doesn't resolve. The book doesn't resolve in a neat, tidy bow, uh, which is one of the reasons it stayed with me, I think. There's so much of that many of the characters still don't know about each other or understand about each other. There are things that they think happened that didn't. The secrets still sort of swirl. Why, why did you make that decision to not let it be tied up in a bow? I, I guess I, 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 that's something that people said about my first novel as well. And I, I guess it's because I, I don't feel that life ties itself up very neatly. Um, sometimes the, the joy of fiction is that you get the resolution that you don't have in life. But sometimes I think one of the things that fiction does best is that it asks you a lot of questions. It poses you questions for you to answer. And so at the end, we know approximately what happens to many of the characters, and the reader knows much more than the characters do. But um, it, it didn't feel natural to me to kind of wrap it up and to jump forward in time and say, okay, now, you know, 15 years later, here's where everyone is. Right. Um, I wanted to leave that space, I think, for the reader to come in and kind of complete the narrative and, um, you know, connect the circuit, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Well, it's very effective. Um, the book is called Little Fires Everywhere, You can read about this and other great books by women authors at 52 Weeks, 52 Books, 52Women.com, and subscribe to this podcast at all fine purveyors of podcasts. Celesting, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you. It was a pleasure.